Ink and Paint wishes to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded and edited. It is a great privilege to be able to tell stories on this land, which has a tradition of storytelling stretching back over 10,000 years. We also wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from all over the world where our guests record from. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and emerging, and to our First Nations listeners. Well, Walt Disney... Donald Duck. Well, Edgar, how did you like the picture? Mr. Disney, it behooves me to say that it was an honor, a great honor to work for you. Oh, Charlie, that's nice of you. An honor, I might say, I richly deserve. (laughs) Well, I hope we have the pleasure of working together again. That would be nice. Mr. Disney, I can do the same thing for you that I did for Bergen. Oh, no, thanks. I like to keep my hair. (laughs) Hello, and welcome to another episode of Ink and Paint, a podcast journey through the Disney animated classics. I'm your host, Daniel Lamon. We're exploring one by one the films in the official Disney animated canon and talking about their artistic, historical and social context, where they come from, their impact and how they sit with us now. In our previous episode, the wartime era began with the two South American films released as part of the Good Neighbor policy, Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros. In this episode, we come to three films mostly forgotten in the Disney canon. The first three package films, Make My Music, Fun and Fancy Free, and Melody Time. Walt Disney Productions had been kept afloat during the war thanks to their government contracts for producing training and propaganda films. But when the war came to an end in 1945, so did those contracts. Apart from the two Good Neighbor films, the studio had hardly produced anything for the past few years that wasn't linked in some way to the war effort. And with the security of those ongoing contracts now gone, they were once again left in a precarious creative and financial position. There were a number of projects that can now be restarted, including the long gestating feature adaptations of The Wind in the Willows, Cinderella, Peter Pan and Alice in Wonderland, a new creative project with Salvador Dali, and Walt's dream project, Song of the South. But embarking on a new feature animation project was too much of a risk, especially after the debilitating track record of failures during the early 40s. And as much as the government contracts had kept them afloat during the war, they also hadn't generated any significant profit either. The studio also had a responsibility to its shareholders and to Bank of America, who were all equally skeptical that feature animation would be a profitable exercise, especially with the properties currently in development. Bank of America called for the company, and its figurehead, to take more responsibility for paying back the ever-building debt. Once again, the company went through a massive restructuring, including further layoffs and Walt resigning as president of the company to become chairman of the board, with Roy, now president, overseeing a new management committee. This created further tension with the staff, drastically reduced thanks to both the layoffs and many of the men having been drafted during the war. There were also other creative threats. During the 1941 strike, many of the now unemployed animators formed United Productions of America, 
a new animation studio that counteracted the reach towards realism in Disney animation with a more impressionistic graphic style that sat closer to the tone of post-war America than Disney's pastoral elegance. Warner Brothers had also set up their own rough-and-tumble animation studio with artists such as Tex Avery, Chuck Jones, William Hanna, and Joseph Barbera, and as the war came to an end, their madcap Looney Tunes series was about to enter its own golden age. The staff at Disney enviously watched the surrealist insanity of the Looney Tunes, a far cry from the methodology at Disney which had reduced the process of animation and story development to an assembly line. Walt Disney was equally frustrated. Commerce was of no interest to him. He was driven by artistic expression, and while he longed for the perfection of the Golden Age films, he was faced with the hard truth that such films were not feasible anymore. His fixation on Song of the South was as much due to the fact that live action was cheaper to produce than animation as it was his love for the Joel Chandler Harris stories. The company had been founded on animation though, and animation was his route to artistic purity. If he couldn't make feature animated films, then what on earth were they supposed to do? The answer, suggested Roy, was right in front of their eyes. As much as Fantasia had proved a box office disaster, the format of collecting a series of shorts into a feature had proven at least a financial success with Saludos Amigos. Roy suggested that they continue the trend and package some of the short subjects in development, some of them leftovers from Fantasia and the Good Neighbor films, into feature films. The financial risk wouldn't be as significant, and it would at least give the animation staff something to do. With no other real option, an increasingly disillusioned Walt agreed. Each episode on Ink and Paint, I'm joined by a special guest, not just film and animation enthusiasts, but people from all different professions. This week, I'm joined by film historian and author J.B. Kaufman. Mr. Kaufman has written and lectured extensively on the history of Disney animation, the silent film era, and other areas of cinema studies, and is the author of some of the most authoritative books on Disney history, including The Fairest One of All, The Making of Walt Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, Pinocchio, The Making of the Disney Epic, South of the Border with Disney, and most recently, The Making of Walt Disney's Fun and Fancy Free. JB, welcome to Ink and Paint. Well, thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Now, much of your writing and your research has dealt deals with the early days of film history, not just the early days of Disney animation, but also the, the silent film era and the film um, history in the first half of the 20th century. What led you towards that area of study and interest? Well, there's a long answer to that. <laughs> the, the somewhat shorter answer is that, um, like many of us, I was, I was a Disney kid from the age of five. My, my first memory of ever seeing a movie was seeing a reissue of Cinderella in, a, in the theater. And um, just the, the sheer beauty of that experience of seeing that, that beautiful animated picture on the screen. I guess I can say now it literally was a life-changing experience. From, from that time on, I was, I was hooked on, I, I, I think for a while, I just wanted to be Walt Disney. But then it turned out that that job was taken. So um, I, I, I still was interested in anything with the Disney name on it. And then along about the age of 12, I discovered um, the history of silent movies and how fascinating they were. And so then I also became hooked on film history. And eventually I figured out that you could put those two things together because Walt Disney was a very, very important part of the classic era of American filmmaking. And uh, from that time on, one thing just led to another. It, it really was a hobby to begin with. But 
it's it's turned into more than that since then. What were some of the films from the silent era that you were responding to? You know, if, if Cinderella was the first Disney film you remember seeing, what were some of the first silent films you remember seeing? Well, I my first uh, discovery in the area of silent film was the silent comedies. And uh, for anyone who is looking to get into silent film, who's, who's not already uh, interested, um, I recommend the silent comedies as, as a good way in, because uh, once you've cut your teeth on the works of Charlie Chaplin and Buster Keaton and, and Harold Lloyd and a few others, you at that point, you may never want to go back to talkies. That's, that's just, a, just a, such a wonderful gold standard that um, you can't help becoming addicted to silent film. And then if, if your experience is like mine, uh, one thing, again, leads to another, and, and you just you, you find yourself getting more and more absorbed in, uh, in the beauty of the, uh, of the medium. It really, it, silent film really was a different medium altogether. It's not movies with something missing any more than talking pictures are movies with something tacked on. They really are two different media. You know, once, as I say, once you discover the beauty of silent film, it's 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 hard to let go. How much did the language of silent film influence Disney animation at the time, but also what Disney animation would become in the 30s and 40s? Um, how much did, did silent film language have an impact on that form? Well, it had a tremendous impact because uh, during the silent era, uh, film was primarily a visual language. Uh, and that was one of the beauties of it. You know, it really transcended international barriers because uh, it was it was truly a universal visual language that that pretty much set the standard for film art uh, in general. I think uh, when when sound was added to film, uh, it it brought it brought a new dimension with it, but it didn't erase the fact that that film is, I think, primarily a visual medium. And, you know, Walt Disney did get his start in, in filmmaking during the silent era. He, he was he was part of that era. So he he was thoroughly grounded in the art of telling a story primarily visually well before he made Steamboat Willie. Now, that's not to say that he and, and his artists didn't make full creative use of the soundtrack, but they never lost sight of the importance of, of the, uh, the visual. Which I guess is an important thing to consider with the films we're going to be talking about in this episode, particularly because so many of them are visually driven. But before we get to, into them, I also want to ask, what, what steps did you take to then start focusing on researching Disney and silent film history? How do you become you know, an historian on these subjects? Well, I don't know how normal people do it, but my, my, my road, I, I had an idea that I would really like to write a, a book about the short Disney cartoons of the 1930s and, you know, breaking them down one by one. And I, I was naive enough to think that I could just walk into the Disney archives and start working. So I approached them about this and they said, sit down, son. <laughs> and they, they kind of explained the facts of life to me. Uh, which which basically uh, amounted to the fact that you don't get permission to work on something like that until it's been approved. And it was much, much easier to get approval for smaller scale projects than for something major like that. I still I still would like to write that book about the Disney shorts of the 30s, and I still fully intend to get around to it. But in the meantime, uh, I got started on some side roads, and they have led into some very interesting territory. So for for quite a while, it 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 was it was much easier to get their okay 
for articles in, in magazines and journals than, than for a book project. So that's how I started out doing it. And uh, I was, I, the, the first time I published an article, uh, I was so proud of myself that, <laughs> that I was, that I could have exploded. You know, I, I started publishing a number of those. And then, uh, and then the next thing that happened was that uh, my friend Russell Merritt, who I might say is, is, is one of the most brilliant film historians in the world, he and I collaborated on a project with Le Giornate del Cinema Muto, which you may know is the world's leading silent film festival. It's held every, it's held every fall in, in Pordenone, Italy. Long story short, uh, they did a retrospective of Walt Disney silent films, and we wrote a book to go with that. Uh, with the with the company's uh, cooperation, I must say they they were very forthcoming and very helpful, and that became the first book that either Russell or I had ever published. And we, we actually thought that it was only going to be available at the festival, but once the festival was over, uh, it kind of got out into the world and became a real book. So I kind of got into the book publishing world through the back door. And what impact has Disney had? I mean, obviously, it's had an enormous impact on your professional life. But what about your personal life? How much has Disney impacted? Has it had an impact on the other aspects of your life? I don't know how I could quantify it, but I can tell you that it, it is now a very, very big part of my life. Because, you know, um, the, the, the name Disney means different things to different people. To me, Walt Disney is important because he was one of the major artists in the film world and really in the world period uh, during the 20th century. I, uh, I like the theme parks. You know, I, I like a lot of the other uh, sort of byproducts of, of Disney. But for me, what he accomplished and what he and his team accomplished in the world of animation is just um, that that's just an, an irreducible monument to creativity, I think. And, and I, I really believe and again, not to not to disparage the, the theme parks or anything else, but I really believe that history will remember him as one of the major artists because of that contribution. I mean, it's one of the things that I found with this project, going through them chronologically, the the artistic evolution that happens in the first five films in the big five is astronomical. I still can't quite believe that you can go that as an art form, it can go from Snow White, which is beautiful, absolutely beautiful, to Pinocchio, which is one of the great works of art of the 20th century, that it that they can leap in terms of their technical proficiency, their proficiency in storytelling, um, the sophistication in every aspect of the filmmaking process can happen in the course of those, between those two films, particularly when it's a form that essentially before Snow White did not really exist. Feature animation was not a thing. It always takes me by surprise, and I feel very humbled by within the presence of them. I I can I can second that. The first of the package films was a musical fantasy comprising ten sequences linked together as a kind of concert. After Fantasia, it had been suggested to Waltz that the format might lend itself to popular music as well as classical, and Make Mine Music is in many ways a populist version of Fantasia. Many of the segments were leftovers from other films, such as Without You and Two Silhouettes, which sprung from abandoned ideas developed for the Good Neighbour films, or the lavish adaptation of Sergei Prokofiev's Peter and the Wolf, which had been intended for Fantasia. The Blue Bayou sequence used animation initially completed for Fantasia, set to Claude Debussy's Claire de Lune to later be added to the film in re-release, but when that plan was scrapped, 
the animation was reused for Make My Music and set to a different song. While the finished film simply presents the segments one after the other, there were early plans to give the film some kind of structure. Story artist Sylvia Holland, who in 1938 was the second woman hired in the story department, had been a key artist on the development of many sequences in Fantasia, but had been laid off in 1942 after the strike. She was rehired not long after, and worked on many of the war projects, including Victory Through Air Power, as well as a number of educational films, including the story of menstruation, and the never completed The History of Music. When production began on Make Mine Music, Holland was asked to develop storyboards for continuity segments between the films featuring the Greek muses, an idea that never eventuated. Seeing an opportunity to make further use of abandoned material she had developed for Fantasia, Holland pitched another package film, Vagabond Virtuoso, and began developing the idea. However, Sylvia Holland was once again laid off in 1946, and that project was shelved. While many of the sequences in the film are fairly traditional and mostly forgettable, there are a few standout moments. The two sequences set to performances by Benny Goodman, All the Cats Join In and After You're Gone, have a much stronger graphic style closer to what was being developed at UPA, with After You're Gone building on the surrealist ideas in the pink elephant scene in Dumbo and the end of the Three Caballeros. In terms of storytelling and character animation, Peter and the Wolf and the Whale Who Wanted to Sing at the Met are small triumphs, the former in particular making great use of the character motifs in the music to inform the temperament and design of the characters themselves. Both would have great success as shorts on their own in the future. When we talk about the package features, that basically means that you're looking at a feature-length film that's made up of more than one uh, sort of disparate uh, segment. Within that broad definition, there, there are several ways that that can be that that can be broken down. There, there are several variations on that, but, but those are the package features. Basically, you're talking about an evening's entertainment with more than one uh, story or subject included in it. How prevalent was this as a form before Saludos Amigos and Three Caballeros came along? Like, how Was this something that film in Hollywood in general was engaging in, this kind of a package form? Um, at that point, I don't think it was very common. It actually did become more common as the 40s went along. Um, you know, so you would have stories like Oh Henry's Full House and, and you know, things like that. Uh, a really interesting uh, horror film that was kind of an omnibus called Dead of Night. You know, that's, that, was, that was another uh, nice example. But, but in, in the early 1940s, uh, it, I, I can't say, I mean, it, it wasn't completely unknown, but it wasn't that common. And you're right, uh, it, it, is, it is possible to view uh, Fantasia, uh, Saludos Amigos, and the Three Caballeros as, as package features, because all of them have uh, a variety of segments included in them. I think, I think today, I think when we talk about the package features, we tend to be referring to uh, the ones that that uh, were released after the war, and how viable was it as a format? Because I mean, you know, it comes out of the the financial necessity of you know we don't they don't have a lot of money post the war they can't go back into feature animation yet. How viable was the package form as an idea for achieving the the goals of being able to keep the artists employed, to keep them busy, but also to bring some sort of income into the studio? From that standpoint, they they were viable, but they were not outstandingly successful they didn't they didn't lose money 
<laughs> which, which you know, was always a good thing. Uh, and in fact, uh, there, there was there was a, a combination of circumstances that led to the, the the package features. And one of the circumstances was that they actually had lost money on Pinocchio and on Fantasia. But one of the things that I really admire about Walt is that when he did have a setback like that, like Pinocchio and Fantasia uh, actually losing money, uh, that's a situation where a lot of executives would have been uh, inclined to, uh, to to be to play it safe, to to sort of pull in their oars and and hunker down and find uh, a cheap way to get by. And uh, Walt's instinct always was to go big, and uh, and and Roy had his his brother had had to pull him back sometimes. Roy was, as, as you know, the the business head of the, the company. I mean, Walt wasn't wasn't stupid. He he knew that there were that that these were serious uh, conditions and that that something had to be done. But he went about doing those things by uh, by going as big as he could. And uh, and one of the things that had happened in, in, in all through the 1930s, but uh, in a new way in the late 1930s, his his story department was just coming up with some of the most most creative, most far reaching ideas. And and he was encouraging that because, you know, he he believed in the medium of animation. He, he didn't see he didn't see any limits to what animation could accomplish. So he was all for uh, going as as big as possible in 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 that department, and so uh, the story department had tons of of great ideas, all of all of them in various stages of development, which uh, which could make great animated films. They they suddenly found themselves in a in a position where it, it didn't make financial sense to to try to keep uh, reproducing. Films on 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 the model of uh, Snow White or Pinocchio, uh, where you're you're basically you've basically got one narrative thread all the way through, but they had all the all of these other sort of more bite sized ideas, which um, which could be used in some other way, and and so the creative challenge was to find a good outlet for those ideas, and uh, and the package films turned out to be a really useful outlet for that. But that kind of leads into my first question about Make My Music in particular, which is the question of where do all of these pieces come from? Because while the other two at least have some sort of almost kind of a visual unity in some respects, all of the segments in Make My Music really do feel like they're coming from different, completely different projects, completely different thoughts about what animation could be. Um, I mean, obviously you have a section like Blue, Blue Bayou, which is from a from a different decade literally in the terms of it's it's a piece of animation from the 19 from the late 30s for Fantasia where do all of these pieces come from and how do they come about being put together how do they choose these particular 10 pieces well the reason they all look as if they're coming from different places is because they are um as as you say uh blue bayou is is a good example uh as as, as you know that uh during the making of of Fantasia I don't. You, you've probably already gotten into this in in talking about Fantasia, but at one time Walt envisioned Fantasia as being a film that would never be retired. It would stay in in permanent circulation, but the studio would keep making new segments for it. And uh, if the film, if it had been successful, they would have they would have followed through on that. Well, one of the follow up uh, pieces that they had in mind was Claire de Lune, 
And as you say, it it progressed far enough that they they actually came up with a really beautiful uh, animated piece to go with the music, and uh, and and so that was that was sitting on the shelf ready to use if if uh, Fantasia had been successful enough to warrant it. Well, that was too beautiful to waste. At at the time that that the film we know today as Make My Music was starting to take shape. One of the ideas that was volunteered for it was that they could revive this this uh, Claire de Lune piece that they had, had been uh, planning, and so for a while that was going to be part of this this new feature. And then, because the feature was leaning more toward popular music, um, the decision was taken to to keep the animation but write a new piece of music to go with it. And so that that song, Blue by You which has nothing to do with Roy Orbison, <laughs> was written by two of the studio songwriters. And, and it is a lovely song, and it, and it works beautifully with the animation. So they, they sort of had a ready-made uh, segment for this new feature. Another one, in fact, this may have the deepest roots of anything that is in Make Mine Music, is uh, Peter and the Wolf, which actually goes back to 1938, when Prokofiev actually visited the studio and told Walt that he had made this, that he had written this music with the hope that it, that, that it might be used in a Disney film someday. This is the regard in which Walt Disney was held around the world at that time. He wasn't just a successful movie producer. He was regarded internationally as a major artist and, uh, and a composer of, of Prokofiev's standing um, just loved the idea that his music might be heard in a Disney film someday. Which makes sense. I mean, the the thing that's so thrilling about the Peter and the Wolf sequence, which is probably my favourite sequence in um in Make My Music, is just how perfectly suited that piece of music is to storytelling and animation. Like the fact of you know the decision to have each character represented by a different musical motif, which then can be translated into a different visual motif for each of the characters. It just that's incredible. I didn't actually know that that Prokofiev had ri- written it with Disney in mind. Yeah, it's uh, and 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 you're right. It was it, it it is perfectly suited, and that didn't happen by accident. Um, but but yeah, Prokofiev he was he was visiting the U.S. and he um, and, and of course at that in 1938. Uh, they were they were getting really serious about the film that would become Fantasia, and when he visited the studio and and saw the new recording techniques that that they were coming up with, he was just captivated, and and um, it, it was it was a, a mutually satisfying visit for for him and and for Walt because uh, again they they did start talking at that point about the possibility of using this music for for a Disney film and. And again, if all had gone well with Fantasia, uh, it would have been part of Fantasia at some point. On, on the other hand, um, Prokofiev was so impressed with what he saw of, of Stokowski's re- recording uh, the music for, for Fantasia that he took those ideas back with him to Russia and tried to uh, pull off something similar when he uh, wrote the, the music for uh, Eisenstein's film, Alexander Nevsky. He, he was he was really, really hoping to come up with a sort of equivalent to the Fantasound process. Unfortunately, uh, what he got was was uh, the war surplus equipment that was available in Russia in, in, in the 
uh, I guess that was the Stalin years. And he wasn't able to, to pull off quite the same level of, of technical perfection, but the music was there. And I don't know whether, you, whether you're familiar with uh, Eisenstein's film, but you, you, can, you can take uh, the beauty of Prokofiev's music for it uh, as, as one result of how impressed Prokofiev was with what he saw at the Disney studio in 1938. Oh, I mean, that, it's the degree to which the influence of the technical achievements at Disney in the 30s and 40s had on cinema, the, the wider history of cinema, I just still find so mind-boggling. I still, the, one of the, my favourite facts I've discovered in, the, in researching was reading about how, he, how Walt had invented the click track in order to solve the problems of sound on Steamboat Willie. Like, the way that Disney kind of seeps into the DNA of cinema history is just is incredibly thrilling to learn about. It, it is, it is. And, and everything is connected to everything else. <laughs> That's, you know, the, you, you, you start following one of these roads and it always leads to something else. What, how much of an influence did popular music at the time in the, in the mid-40s have on the decision for what kind of pieces would become part of Make My Music. Because, I mean, before this, you have a very particular start, like musical signature for Disney. You have Frank Churchill and Lee Harlein um, and Charles Walcott, who have given these given a, Disney a very particular sound. It is quite a surprise when watching them chronologically to then come across a film where you have pieces by Benny Goodman and pieces by the Andrews sisters. How much of an impact did popular music have on the pieces they decided to use in this film? Well, I'm really glad you asked that question because I've just finished uh, writing an article uh, for uh, the Journal of American Music about that very subject. To me, it's, it's really striking, and I don't think it's been commented on very much. The, the, music, the musical end of Disney films through the 1930s was, was brilliant, but it was mostly self-contained. You know, you had these these uh, these tunesmiths that were on the on the Disney staff uh, who did brilliant brilliant work, but but yeah, it was all it was all in house. And suddenly, at the end of the war, suddenly you are seeing a real uh, confluence of Disney production and what was then current American popular music, and it's it's it is. Uh, a very striking change, and it happens both in terms of the performers and also in terms of the songwriters. You know, because by that time, uh, Harleen and Churchill were both gone uh, from the Disney Studio, and I mean, they still had you know they still had, had Oliver Wallace and and, and other talented people, uh, but suddenly you're getting Tin Pan Alley songwriters who are being contracted for a single film or a group of films. And there's a lot, suddenly, a lot of crosstalk between the Disney studio and the popular music market. You know, the, the nature of animation, is, is of, of classic animation, is that it takes so long to produce that uh, they deliberately concentrated on timeless stories and timeless music. Uh, whereas in 1940, uh, Benny Goodman, you know, he he had been he had been around since sometime in the 1920s and had been reasonably successful. But in the late 1930s, his career just suddenly took off like a skyrocket. And in the spring of 1940, he was one of the hottest properties in the music business. So for them to be actively trying to engage somebody who was you know that currently popular would have been a major departure. Well, it was a major departure. And uh, and they and they started 
trying to to negotiate with him. And the only thing that held up the negotiations was that they couldn't come up with a story idea that Walt was really happy with. You know, they they continued to work at it while while everything else was going on. But everything else included, uh, you know, the the start of the war, the start of war related production, uh, the the strike, and and a few little things like that, in, including the um, the Good Neighbor project, which uh, occupied a lot of Walt's attention. But in the meantime, the idea of a, of doing a short with Benny Goodman was still percolating. And uh, by about by 1943 or 44, uh, they were they were getting the kinks worked out and were actively working on a couple of projects with him. I guess music like you know, the music that he has for um, um, all the cats join in and after you've gone, that particular sound kind of have to has to force the artist to rethink how they can visually approach animation and anima- and visual storytelling. Because I mean, there's the beautiful surprise of Make My Music is the first time you're seeing the Disney artists respond to the contemporary world. You know, you have contemporary music, you know, you, you're seeing, you know, kids in the 1940s uh, going to a malt shop or you're seeing, you know, you're seeing aspects of the real world these films exist in actually entering into the film itself. In, a, in the same way that Fantasia is thrilling to see the marriage of classical music and animation and seeing how one art form influences the other, it's that's kind of similar with Make My Music of seeing particularly Benny Goodman's influence, having to force them to rethink how they approach their visual storytelling. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. And um, it is the case that in its finished form, Make My Music is more or less uh, a fantasia for popular music, allowing for the fact that there is, there is the one classical piece in it, um, Peter and the Wolf, and, uh, and then there is the, the segment at the end, The Whale Who Wanted to Sing at the Met, um, Sort of takes on the world of opera too, <laughs> but uh, but everything else pretty much qualifies as is either current pop or jazz uh, music, and, and and a wide range of it too, because you know there there was a wide range in 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 the the world of popular music at that time. The idea of of making the film that we know today as Make My Music didn't automatically come into focus because again the whole situation was that they had all of these wonderful ideas kind of kind of swimming around in in a, in a sort of uh, creative soup there and and the question was what kind of outlet would make sense in terms of showmanship but also in terms of the business you know they they uh, they were in a business they had to make some profit on on everything that was released to theaters. Uh, So the creative and the business uh, interests really had to be aligned. And um, at one time in uh, late uh, 1944 and into early 45, uh, one of the ideas that, that that was gaining some real traction was that they would make two pictures, uh, each of them less than feature length they were talking about something in the neighborhood of 40 minutes each and and again it's it's hard to say what the original uh what what the quote original idea was because the ideas kept morphing and and adapting all the time but the basic idea was they were considering two separate uh four real films uh one of them tentatively titled swing street and the other tentatively titled courier and ives and 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 they they were making up you know tentative programs of 
which of these shorter segments would be included in, in each of these featurette-length films. Swing Street, uh, as the title suggests, was, was going to be more of a, a, a pop or, or jazz-oriented uh, picture. Courier and Ives was going to be more sort of Americana-themed. And, uh, and, 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 and again, both of these ideas were, were staying in flux uh, pretty much, and sometimes stories would be swapped between one and the other. Uh, Roy Disney, the, the business head of the company, uh, was kind of slowly tearing his hair out because he uh, he he really was concerned with what would be uh, most uh, saleable at, at at the box office, uh, and he had long since uh, kind of adopted a policy of. Of deferring to Walt, but always letting him know what the, what he really hoped they would do, and uh, and when this subject came up, he said, "I really, really wish that we would abandon the idea of these two shorter films and make one feature length film." And ultimately, of course, that is that is what they did do, and 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 again, Swing Street was was the title, uh, the working title for a while and, until they came up with Make Mine Music, and they actually put out a call throughout the studio to ask people to suggest alternate titles and uh, make my music uh, turned out to be the winner. And it's such a strange title. I mean, in the, in a way, the titles for the other two package films make a certain degree of sense in relation to what their content is. Make my music, it always strikes me whenever I watch it that it's a very strange title in terms of I don't quite understand what it means. Maybe it is uh, in terms of like wordplay or musical references from the 1940s, but it does, it has a very mysterious quality to it, which I think in a way kind of matches the what I find is a very mysterious quality to the film. Because apart from the unifying, you know, it, it uses music as a unifying factor, in most cases, popular music, the fact that you've got these pieces, some of which are relatively new in terms of their conception, and some of them dating from basically another world, which is what the world was like before the war, and then them all put together, there's a kind of almost... Ha- like, I find something quite haunting about Make My Music. This is very um an abstract concept. Like, it's kind of like a film of ghosts. It's a kind of a transitional film, and that's kind of like the ghost of what Disney animation was and what it might be able to be, but it hasn't quite worked out what that is yet. How? What does this film tell us about the state of Disney animation immediately after the war? Because this is coming out bang on straight after the, the US have left the Second World War with, once the war is over. That's, that's a really interesting interpretation. To answer your question, um, that's, that's one of the things that I really love about the film is that you're getting kind of a, a snapshot of uh, sort of the state of the art. It's almost a grab bag of different uh, techniques that are possible in the medium of Disney animation. You know, by that, by that time, there was no longer just one identifiable Disney style. The, they, were, they had mastered more than one style, and you see several of those styles on display uh, in, in this film. It's like going to an art gallery, I think. Um, and one of the things that I like about it, I, it, it's this is a film that has a, a special place in my heart. You may have noticed that the production supervisor of the film was Joe Grant. Yes, I did. Which, I mean, is this the only film in which he was the production supervisor? It was. It was. And that, to me, is special because uh, I knew Joe Grant. And he was such a wonderful guy. He was, And, and he was an artist 
to his fingertips. He he just he he was an important name in Disney history, but he also loved the whole sort of wide-ranging world of art. Very sophisticated, a very kind of uh subtle, self-deprecating and sometimes kind of sardonic uh sense of humor. Uh and I think to anyone who knew him or was familiar with his personality, you can really see his stamp on the finished film. In some ways, it's very, very sophisticated. You know, for anyone who who still thinks that cartoons are only for kids, it's it's not the only example, but it's one example that that kind of disproves that. It's it's uh, I don't want to say grab bag, but it's 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 an assortment of some of the best things that can be done with animation by this world-class studio at this point in history. And, and you have to be attuned to subtleties to really appreciate some of the things that, that, that they're doing. You know, it's, I, I think of one of the beauties of the construction of it is that you really do wind up with the two strongest segments at the end, which is uh, Johnny Fedora and Alice Blue Bonnet and the whale who wanted to sing at the Met. I just I I really feel uh, Joe Grant's influence in in things like that. The film is such a, a fascinating. I don't mean this disparagingly, but like it's it's a fascinating experiment of a film. I think possibly even more so than than Fantasia, because I mean Fantasia it has they have a certain degree of confidence of knowing what they can do and pushing the boundaries of what they know. But with this, you can see. It's almost like you're watching experimentation in terms of what the form can be in real time. And, you know, the influence of there are now other animation studios. There's now UPA, there's Warner Brothers. There are other other um, major studios making fascinating artistic um, pursuits. You can see that there's like an awareness within this film of the, that animation is a bigger world than just what's happening at Burbank, that there are other influences and other forms being experimented with. And we get to see them try that, in some cases wildly successful, in some cases not. But I think you, you're completely right. And, like, it's a document of what was going on in their heads at the time. Now, probably in the process of trying to find out what can Disney animation be now that we've, we've exited the war, we don't have the money to make something as grand as Bambi, what is it that we can do now? Like, where, where, where else can we, can we find our footing with this? I think, in a way, I think Snow White became a ghost that that dogged Walt's footsteps for the rest of his career. Because, in, in fact, he even said in an interview that he almost came to hate Snow White because it had been it had been such a tremendous success that forever after that, everything he did was automatically compared to Snow White and found wanting in some way. I, I don't I don't believe in comparisons like that. When films are as good as these are. I hate to play them against each other. I, I like to consider each one on its on its own merits. When you do that, when you when you do look at it on its own merits, it's just kind of a, a wonderful, uh, wide ranging example of what the studio can do. And you're right. You know, by this time, um, uh, UPA at least the seeds of it were there, and 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 other and other studios were were doing other things, and 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 some of them doing very very good things, but. I think that you you see in Make Mine Music that the Disney artists were still very very much the masters of the form, and and you and you see examples of of individual animators who could do wonderful things. Uh, you know some of the some of the greatest that ever worked in the business. You can see their fingerprints on it too. 
uh, all the cats join in is one of my favorite segments in the film and not only because of the music or, or the concept but because of fred moore's animation he was he was one of the best ever After a name change from Swing Street to Make My Music, the film was released in August 1946 to mostly dismissive reviews. In his New York Times review, Bosley Crowther called the film vivid, motley, ornamental, and just a bit questionable at points. And this seems to be the general feeling towards the film. Despite some flashes of imagination and inventiveness, the film as a whole didn't have any discernible character of its own. It was, as production supervisor Ben Sharpstein put it, a remnant sale. Surprisingly, the film did bring in a profit though, helped by the edict from the management committee that the film should be completed as economically as possible. And it even had an unexpected fan in Soviet director Sergei Eisenstein, who called the film absolutely ingenious. The film was also entered into the 1946 Cannes Film Festival. More so than perhaps any film in the Disney canon though, Make My Music has mostly been forgotten by the public. Like many of the wartime era films, it was picked apart for its shorts and never received a major re-release. Its release on home video has been sporadic, with many releases in the US removing the Martins and McCoy sequence because of its excessive depiction of gun violence, and is thus far the only film in the official Disney canon not available on Disney+, Plus for reasons that have never been made clear. With Make My Music proving there was still some strength in the package format, the studio turned their attention to find other projects that could work in the format. As it turned out, they had two that seemed perfectly suited to the task. Jiminy Cricket, once again voiced by Cliff Edwards, introduces us to the story of Bongo, read by Dinah Shaw, a circus bear who longs to return to the wilderness. Once he escapes, he finds forest life hard to adapt to, but falls in love with the forest bear Lulubel. After learning the strange courting customs of the bears, Bongo and Lulubel begin their happy life together. Jiminy then takes us to visit ventriloquist Edgar Bergen, who along with his dummies Charlie McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd, tell their visitor, child actress Luella Patton, the story of Mickey and the Beanstalk, where after acquiring some magic beans that grow into a giant beanstalk, Mickey, Donald and Goofy rescue a golden harp from the clutches of a shape-shifting giant. Both segments of Fun and Fancy Free were originally put into development as feature films in the early 40s before being shelved during the war. Mickey and the Beanstalk had been conceived in the late 30s as part of the same push to renew Mickey Mouse's popularity as the Sorcerer's Apprentice. Animators Bill Cottrell and T. Hee had pitched the idea of an adaptation of Jack and the Beanstalk, starring Mickey, Donald and Goofy. But while Walt was charmed by the idea, he didn't think it had promise. After much convincing, he allowed the project to start development in May 1940 under the title The Legend of Happy Valley. Once Dumbo had completed rough animation in May 1941, production began on The Legend of Happy Valley. At the same time, another idea was floated as a potential sequel to Dumbo, an adaptation of Sinclair Lewis's 1930 short story, Bongo, possibly using many of the same circus characters. In December 1941, around 50 minutes of Happy Valley had been animated, and the script for Bongo completed, but due to first the strike and then the US entering the war, both projects were shelved. Once the package films had entered production, Walt considered pairing Happy Valley, now renamed Mickey and the Beanstalk, with the long gestating adaptation of The Wind in the Willows as a double feature, tentatively called Two Fabulous Characters. The film was eventually removed from that project and paired with the revived Bongo project instead, 
resulting in fun and fancy free. The initial designs for Bongo had leaned towards realism, but were now simplified and the story stripped back, including all ties to Dumbo. Unlike Make My Music, Fun and Fancy Free does have a framing device. Jiminy Cricket returns, singing the song I'm a Happy-Go-Lucky Fellow, a song that had been cut from Pinocchio, and Edgar Bergen and Dinah Shaw were brought on to add more appeal to audiences. Bergen and his characters had also featured in some of the early Disney shorts and would appear in the studio's first television program, One Hour in Wonderland. Since Steamboat Willie in 1928, Walt Disney himself had provided the voice of Mickey Mouse. Due to his growing disinterest in the character and the distractions of running the company, Mickey and the Beanstalk would be his last performance as Mickey, passing the role on to sound effects artist Jimmy McDonald, who would provide the voice of Mickey for the next 38 years. With Fun and Fancy Free, one of the first questions I had was how much of these films existed before they decided, because I know both of these projects were, were projects that had been conceived before the war. How much of these two existed in any form before they decided to restart them to put them together for Fun and Fancy Free? Well, both of them existed in, in story form uh, and many, many, many uh, concept uh, paintings and, and story sketches and, and scripts had been generated for both of them. So in that sense, they, they did both exist uh, before the war, or I, I should say before the U.S. got into the war. They were both in the works by that time. Now, Mickey and the Beanstalk was farther along, and there's, there's a whole backstory to that. But, but Mickey Mouse, as you know, made his first appearance in 1928. By 1938, there was already a threat that he might be eclipsed by newer and more dynamic characters, uh, in particular Donald Duck. And Walt's personal affection for Mickey Mouse was the main thing that, that, that kept him going at that time. And so I, I always find it striking, but, but it is the case that as early as 1938, they were literally talking about a comeback for Mickey Mouse. They actually used that word. And as, as you know, there, there were reasons for that problem. You know, they, they had developed a, a personality for him that worked against uh, dynamic slapstick stories like they could uh, devise for, for Donald Duck. Uh, but Walt's idea was to come up with special story material that would work for him and lavishing their best production values on those stories. And that's why you have a short like um, Brave Little Taylor in 1938, which it, it's a short that looks like a feature. <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's so lushly produced. Well, that was just the beginning. He had ideas for other films that would follow on that, and he wasn't necessarily committed to uh, keeping them to the one real length. Uh, there were there was always talk about a longer, like a like a two a special two reel film, which they never quite got around to. But uh, the Sorcerer's Apprentice was going to be another special uh, Mickey short, and of course that. Uh, eventually became Fantasia. Well, around that time, and increasingly after they saw the box office returns from Pinocchio and Fantasia, Walt started getting excited about the idea of making a feature starring Mickey Mouse. You know, it was a, a brilliant idea because uh, they were st at that time they were still working on Bambi. You know, Bambi had been in the works since 1936, and uh, and it was still very very slowly inching along because it was such a complicated film to make. But 
it was possible to make a different kind of feature that would not be as expensive and wouldn't involve so much effects animation and so much slow, painstaking work in, in the character animation. So that was, you know, he, his, his response to the immediate financial problem was to make more of these uh, smaller scale, more economical features. And one of the first that, that they did was Dumbo, which, <laughs> you know, that's, that's kind of a brilliant proof of the concept. It, it turned out to be one of the best films they ever made. At that same time, he was considering other uh, more economical features, and, and the Mickey feature would be one of those. And he, he pointed out that, number one, there was a ready-made market for it because people all over the world already knew and loved these characters. And number two, uh, the artists also knew these characters very well. They had, they had artists who customarily worked only on the short subjects, not on the features. And, and they knew how to animate these characters. They, they knew them backward and forward. So he said, it's, it's, it will be more economical because we don't have to put extra time into character development. These characters are already developed. And uh, so we, we, we're, we're crazy if we don't take advantage of that. So they started to take advantage of it. And, and there were several ideas that uh, were proposed for Mickey features, any or all of which might have been produced if, if that had turned out to be a viable way to go. But the one that was way out in front was Mickey and the Beanstalk. So there was, there was actually some story development on that as early as 1938. And then it, it, uh, it got shelved and then taken out again in 1940. And by, by the, uh, I'd say the early months of 1941, uh, Walt was ready to actually get into the animation. And, and he was, you know, when you read the, the story conference transcripts from those years, he's so anxious to get going that he can't stand it. You know, he's saying, we really need to get going on this. And, you know, why, why aren't we, why aren't we, you know, why, why don't we get this going? And uh, so he's putting some of the top artists uh, with these characters, putting them to work on this. How similar is the final version to what they were conceiving in 1940? How, how close is the version in Final Fantasy III to what they were planning? Well, uh, in some ways, it's very close because they did actually get a, a fair amount of the pencil animation done in 1941. And when the project was revived after the war, again, economy was an important consideration at that point. And, uh, and so one of the key ways of achieving economy was to take the animation that had already been done and then build around that with uh, what was still unfinished. So that, yeah, and at that point in, in 1945 and 46, they were still uh, trying to hammer out some of the story. Uh, so, so there were, there were things about the story that had not been determined yet, but the animation that had already been done, that was pretty much locked down. <laughs> so one of their main considerations was to take this work that had been done and then work around that to fill in what was still missing. Cause it's one of the most unexpected features of that particular set. I mean, both Bongo and Mickey and the Beanstalk have so beautifully animated, but one of the things that really strikes me looking at Mickey and the Beanstalk, it's so much more sophisticated in terms of its in terms of its draftsmanship than what was happening also around it. I mean, the sequence where the Beanstalk you know, starts to grow and lifts them up to the clouds is kind of virtuosic in terms of you know the way that the three of them asleep when they're asleep are moving, the way the vines are moving. There's this particular short, um, section feels so much like 
the classic concept of Disney animation before the war. It doesn't feel as contemporary as something like Make My Music or Melody Time does. Well, you've got a good eye because that that uh, that sequence was was singled out by almost everybody. And one of the things that that I think is interesting about it, one of the big differences cost wise uh, in producing these films between something like Pinocchio and and something like the package features, uh, one of the big differences is the amount of effects animation. And uh, and you and your listeners may already be aware of the distinction, but Effects animation is basically everything that moves in the picture that is not a character. And they had formed a separate, you know, this separate effects animation department uh, as, as early as the 1930s uh, for artists who specialized in water, smoke, fire, uh, you know, any, any kind of object like that that had to move in, in, the, in the picture that, was, that didn't come under the heading of character animation. So when you see, uh, well, well, part of the richness of Pinocchio that, that we were talking about a while ago, part of that comes from this, this lush layer of effects animation, completely separate from uh, the character animation. And, and conversely, one of the things that they felt they could, uh, they could skimp on a little bit in, in these more economical films was that that degree of, of effects animation. And, and what I think is, is really fascinating is that, and, and, and I have to think that they did this deliberately, uh, each film would have a sequence in which the effects animators just went crazy and had the, the freedom to, uh, to really show what they could do. Uh, in Dumbo, it's it's the sequence where uh, the roustabouts and the circus animals are setting up the circus tents in the rain. Very there's there's very little out and out character animation in, in that. It's 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 all just this this rich uh, tapestry of effects animation, and and I think it has a subliminal effect on the viewer because you absorb all that richness, and then it's it, and and that is in the back of your mind as the story goes forward from there. Well. Uh, the 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 sequence of the of the growing beanstalk in in Mickey and the Beanstalk is kind of an equivalent to that um, because it was it was the effects animators who who did almost all of of the work in in that sequence and it is very very striking and and it's you know the the beanstalk almost becomes a character it's it's it almost has a personality these these tendrils that are kind of snaking around the interior of the house and you know, in, investigating uh, Goofy's open mouth as he's snoring and then kind of sharply drawing back again, you know. And it's, it's just, uh, it, it's, it's a very striking thing. And um, I, I think in his heart of hearts, Walt would have loved to have more of that all through the film. But as it turned out, uh, you know, this, this made a very effective showcase for that kind of work. Uh, and in, in a way that, that really impacted the film. Was Bongo as far along in development before the strike and before the war as Mickey and the Beanstalk was? No, it wasn't. But there was serious work being done on the story. And and that's, you know, I, I, th I think that the, the general consensus is that people tend to prefer Mickey and the Beanstalk over Bongo. I feel, again, that I, I just don't like to play them against each other. I don't love Fun and Fancy Free as a film as a whole, but the two individual sequences are just so 
remarkable. It, it, yeah, I kind of can't imagine how you would choose which one is better than the other. I mean, as great as the sequence is with the growing of the beanstalk and Mickey and the beanstalk, the whole sequence of Bongo's first night, first day and night in the forest is magnificent. It's incredibly funny. It's beautifully animated. The character animation is gorgeous. Um, yeah, I can't actually, I, I, I'm the same. I couldn't tell you which one I would think I would prefer. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and, and luckily we don't have to choose, you know, that's, that's another beauty of this, but, but yeah, it's, it, it is, um, it was not developed to the point of animation at, at, at the time that these things were all shelved. One of the things that I find striking about Bongo is, is that it was based on a story by Sinclair Lewis. You know, that was one of the, the things that really intrigued me when I started uh, researching um, this film. And sure enough, I, I found the original publication. You know, Sinclair Lewis is is celebrated for his novels and and his his kind of sharp critique of American manners and, and culture at, at that point in, in the 20th century. I mean, he is. He's one of the great figures in, in American literature. Uh, so I was thinking, okay, how does this story come from from Sinclair Lewis? Well, uh, as it turns out, he he also had a prolific output of short stories, and this was it, it was written as a children's story. Now, when you look at it in hindsight, after being familiar with the film, uh, it's it's a pretty kind of dark and and somber children's story. But but you know, it it, it clearly is intended for for children. Uh, actually, a, a lot of what is in in his story was retained in the film, but but the the basic thing is the basic situation, which is this circus bear, who who has been trained to do lots of tricks, but has never learned how to survive in the in the wild, uh, suddenly is in the wild and and has to learn how to adapt. Of course, there is there is a a brighter, sunnier direction that you can go in with that story, and and that's. That's essentially what what they did, but they considered a lot of different ideas for, for that story because, again, at, at the time, it was intended as a feature length film that would stand on its own. And what was the reasoning behind? Because you know, this is this, this particular period is really fascinating to look at in terms of the way that they're taking this kind of five concepts: making the beanstalk, Bongo, Mister Toad, the Gremlins, and uh, Sleepy Hollow. And you can like all the research I've done, they're kind of moving the pieces around to see which fits best. What eventually was the reasoning behind deciding to combine Bongo and Mickey and the Beanstalk? Was there any discernible reasoning behind that? There actually was. And um, this is another thing that I don't think has been talked about very much. During the 1940s, uh, Disney developed a relationship with the Gallup polling organization. They offered a service to all of the Hollywood studios uh, whereby they could uh, test the viability of, of certain stories, of combinations of stars, and sometimes even something as 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 uh, nitpicky as the title of the film with uh, test audiences before they went to all of the expense of production. Disney started working with them. Their 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 service was called the the ARI, the Audience Research Institute, and uh, and Disney eventually developed their own version of that. And rather than take their, their ideas and, 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 and preview their ideas to uh, audiences outside the studio, they actually tested them against uh, the tastes of the people working at the studio. And, you know, they had one group called the critical group, which was the creative forces, you know, the actual story people and animators and so on. And then they had the non-critical group, which would be, you know, uh, Clerical staff, um, the 
the camera crew, you know, the people who were not uh, necessarily uh, involved in the, in the, in the first hand creative process of making the films, they would try out uh, these ideas at, at various stages of development on these in-studio audiences and, uh, and get their reaction to whether a story was developing satisfactorily or, or, you know, whether they liked one kind of story or one kind of animation better than another. Uh, by the mid-40s, this had become a regular thing. And in 1946, uh, they, they actually had uh, a number, again, this, this, this creative soup was still there. You know, they had all of these different ideas floating around. And Walt had been toying with combining them like this as early as 1943. Again, the term package feature is kind of a loose uh, rubric. You know, it, it, can, it can encompass a variety of approaches. And as early as 1943, he was thinking about this idea of not taking a whole assortment of short pieces, but just taking two feature-at-length films and combining them in, in what amounted to a sort of self-contained double feature. And Roy was nervous about that idea, too. <laughs> but, but Walt kept thinking about it. And by 1946, he was ready to try out that idea. And they had uh, an ARI uh, screening and, and, and survey of three different stories, Bongo, Mickey and the Beanstalk, and Casey Jones, all three of which were at, at various points of, of completion. And they literally took a vote among the studio employees to see which which got the, the most uh, the most likes, you might say, and and the two the two top vote getters were Bongo and Mickey and the Beanstalk, and so that became the new package feature. So it's almost like a mathematical process, as opposed to like that it was just which of the two are the ones that connect the most. Very, exactly. In fact, uh, that's that, that's that's well put. There, there's a a very very good uh, animation historian whom you may know named named Susan Omer who actually wrote a great article about that ARI process and the title of her article was laughter by numbers. <laughs> <laughs> so once it was decided to combine them together, I just want to ask a bit about the framing device because as much as I do love both Bongo and Mick and the Beanstalk, I have to admit I don't love the framing device. What was the process of coming up with that idea and how significant are Dinah Shaw and Edgar Bergen in terms of their presence in the film and where they were in contemporary culture? Again, there's a long answer to that, but the short answer is that for some time, uh, the studio had been considering bringing back Jiminy Cricket. And in fact, for a while, while they were working on Make Mine Music, uh, for a while, there was a plan to include uh, Jiminy Cricket in the, the framing device uh, that would introduce the pieces in Make Mine Music. And, uh, and ultimately, that, that didn't happen. But he was there, and Cliff Edwards uh, had had actively let Walt know at the end of, of Pinocchio that he would just love to come back and work for him again. And 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 and, and Jiminy Cricket is uh, a flexible enough and universal enough character that he would work in a, in a variety of settings like that. You know, Pinocchio is supposed to be kind of this this old world European story, and in fact has characters that seem to come from uh, an international gallery, and and Jiminy Cricket you know, fit into that world, but he was unmistakably a 20th century American character. So it was no problem at all to fit him into um, a framing story for, for Fun and Fancy Free. 
and so and and that's that's basically how how that came about and in fact um I, I'm, I'm sorry we're having to condense a lot of this story but uh one of the ideas that had come up in the process of developing mickey and the beanstalk uh that jiminy cricket th- there was there was a really wild version of it that was proposed uh, i think in about 44 or 45 by the team of Teehee and Bill Cottrell. You couldn't imagine two uh, less similar talents, you know, because Cottrell was was a pretty kind of serious button down character and Teehee was anything but. But they came up with this kind of wild idea in which Mickey and the Beanstalk would be a satire on Hollywood and would would show how Hollywood would take a traditional story like Jack and the Beanstalk and and make uh, an extravaganza out of it. It, it it would have been really really interesting, and in fact the 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 title that they had for it was sooner or later because it was going to feature the song sooner or later, which ultimately wound up in Song of the South instead. As as you know, in Song of the South, it turns out to be a very uh, plaintive little ballad that is beautifully performed by Hattie McDaniel. In in their proposed story, it was going to be. A gaudy nightclub number at at the end of the picture, and, and in fact, it was going to feature Benny Goodman. They, they were going to they were going to have a nightclub number at the end with um, the characters performing the song, but with Benny Goodman's orchestra playing. And uh, I, I, you know, we can only imagine what that would have looked like. As as we know, that that film didn't happen, but uh, but Jim, but it it served to bring uh, Jiminy Cricket into the mix with these particular stories. The only other question I had was about Edgar Bergen and Dinah Shaw. Where were they in contemporary culture at the time and why was their presence in the film important? Like, Why did they end up being involved in the film? Well, Dinah Shaw, uh, again, kind of really hit her stride as, as a performer during the war years. She was, she was um, Benny Goodman was still a hot property, but Dinah Shore was right up there too, and and she had already performed a song for the studio in uh, Make Mine Music, so uh, they already had a working relationship with her. And for a while, again, at, at this time, they were still thinking of Bongo as a feature that would stand on its own. And Jack Kinney, uh, a great creative talent there, he came up with uh, a, a framing story for Bongo that would have introduced Dinah Shore on camera at the beginning. Uh, sitting around a campfire with some girls, sort of a Girl Scout uh, outing, where she would uh, start telling the story. And as she and as the story went on, then the cartoon scenes would fade in. And 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 the fact that sh- that she uh, was there and and could provide extra marquee value as well as as the you know the the, the benefit of her singing voice uh, for the songs in the film. That was important. That's that. That was the significance. They, you know, they they got a good reaction, even though "Make My Music" wasn't a giant hit at the box office. There was um, a, a general feeling that it was a very good thing to combine contemporary singers with Disney animation. You know, they didn't do anything by halves when when they made "Make My Music" because you had Dinah Shore and Benny Goodman and the Andrews Sisters and Andy Russell uh, and Nelson Eddy. And and that was, you know, a complete departure for Disney, and and it went over very well. So I think I think they loved the idea of keeping that kind of connection going. And Edgar Bergen uh, also was very very popular uh, at the time, mainly on radio. But he had made more than a few movies. 
he and, and his dummies had, had appeared in, in quite a few movies by that time. And he and Walt were personal friends. And in fact, they uh, had promoted a number of Disney films on Edgar Bergen's radio show. So there was already a working relationship there. Just as with its predecessor, Fun and Fancy Free was met with indifferent, mostly critical reviews. The common complaint was that the film felt off-balance, and that many of the different elements didn't work well together. In spite of Disney's technical skill, wrote Time on October 20th, 1947, it has never been a very good idea to mix cartoons and live actors. With genial showmanship, Mr. Bergen and co barely managed to save their part of the show. Most of the bongo section is just middle-grade Disney, not notably inspired, and once Mickey and friends get involved with Willie, the whole picture peters out and becomes as oddly off-balance and inconsequential as its title. Compared to Make My Music and Melody Time, Fun and Fancy Free highlights best the limits of the package film format. While the other two at least have music as a unifying theme, Nothing thematically or tonally ties Bongo and Mickey and the Beanstalk together, and the lackluster framing device distances them even further. The depiction of courtship between Bongo and Lulubelle also presents an uncomfortable portrait of spousal relations and gender politics that certainly does not hold up with today's standards. And yet, the film still turned in a healthy profit, and of the three films, has stayed more firmly in the public consciousness. The two shorts remain popular on their own, and the film has enjoyed releases on Laserdisc, VHS and DVD in its original form. In 2014, it was released on Blu-ray in a peculiar release that featured the film with The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad and The Reluctant Dragon. For their third package film, the studio returned to the format of Make My Music, but as had been the case between Saludos Amigos and The Three Caballeros, the lessons from that first film would inform their approach with this one. While many segments of Make My Music had been haphazardly thrown together, those in Melody Time at least had the advantage of knowing what format they would end up in. Once again, the seven musically driven segments were presented as a concert, with vague connecting narration from the various personalities that feature in the film. Early in development, Dick Humor had proposed the idea that the shorts would be connected around the workshop of Currier and Ives, a highly successful printing firm run by Nathaniel Currier and James Merritt Ives in the mid-late 1800s. Their work had become an iconic piece of Americana, and Humor's idea was that the camera would move around the workshop, focusing on particular woodcuts or lithographs, which would then come to life and launch into the individual sequences. The film was even tentatively titled Currier and Ives, and their influence can be seen especially in the Once Upon a Wintertime sequence. Eventually, this framing device was dropped in favour for the simpler concert format. Melody Time also makes use of two other abandoned projects. Walt had a keen interest in swing music and had reached out to Benny Goodman and his band to collaborate on a project. They first discussed an appearance from Goodman in The Reluctant Dragon that would morph into an animated sequence involving jungle animals. This never eventuated, but the idea persisted, including a concept called Swing Fantasia being pitched in 1943. Goodman finally appeared in a Disney film with the two sequences in Make My Music, and in Melody Time, Swing and Classical Music collide with the thrilling Bumble Boogie, with Freddie Martin and his orchestra delivering a swing version of Rimsky-Korsakov's Flight of the Bumblebee, a piece that had been conceived as a future Fantasia segment. 
Another package film being considered by the studio was an anthology based on heroes in American folklore. Very little of Disney animation up until that point had actually engaged with American history and mythology, and this film would connect directly with, albeit white American, storytelling traditions. In the end, only two sequences were completed and included in Melody Time, the strangely religious The Story of Johnny Appleseed and the frenetic Pecos Bill. This exploration of American folklore would reach its zenith with the adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Perhaps the most fascinating and incongruous segment, though, is Blame It on the Samba. Featuring Donald Duck, Joe Carioca, and the Araquan, the sequence feels like a leftover from the Good Neighbor projects, which is exactly what it was. Walt reached out to organist Ethel Smith, who had a keen interest in Latin American music, to work on a segment for what would have been the third Good Neighbor film. But though that film never eventuated, the idea was recycled for Melody Time. Not only does the sequence stand out with its choice of music, but its look is much more in line with the three caballeros, especially the surreal and madcap finale. While Melody Time still suffers from the haphazard structural problems of the other package films, it is by far the most interesting and consistent. Each sequence is at worst interesting and at best thrilling, and showcases some wonderful animation. The influence of Mary Blair is felt the strongest, especially with Once Upon a Wintertime and the story of Johnny Appleseed. The film also feels like a genuine step towards the dominant style of Disney animation of the 1950s that would be defined by films like Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland, a simplicity that didn't negate artistic expression. One of the things that strikes me about Melody Time is that there is a tremendous sense of confidence in that film. As not just confidence in terms of that they know how to have their relationship between the mu between music and animation, but a confidence with the package film format. How confident were they by that point with knowing how to create a, an effective package film? I, I, I guess the answer is very confident because it's um, the you you could say that Melody Time is sort of Make Mine Music Part Two. And in fact, you know, we we talked a little while ago about Swing Street and Courier and Ives. If if there was if there was going to be a, a, a unifying idea in Courier and Ives, it would have been just sort of this general theme of Americana. And 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 in fact, by the end of the forties, Walt was al also developing this interest in American folklore. So that and the Americana thing kind of kind of went together very well. Now, one of the pieces that was going to be in Courier and Ives was Once Upon a Wintertime. And when the decision was taken to make uh, what became Make Mine Music instead, they still were planning to include Once Upon a Winter Time, but but the animation hadn't started yet, and it was way behind the other pieces, so it just wasn't uh, far enough along to to include at that time. So they saved it and put it in Melody Time instead. So you get that, and and that, and of course that goes along with the sort of Americana thing. Um, but, uh, but several of the other pieces were the same way, of course, winding up with Pecos Bill. Then again, there are, there are some anomalies there, including Blame It on the Samba, which was, uh, kind of another leftover piece from the Good Neighbor Project. You know, they, they had, had released Saludos Amigos, they had released Three Caballeros, and then there was going to be a third feature along those lines. And when the war ended and the Good Neighbor program ended, that idea kind of went away. But um, but again, they had so much beautiful work done on 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 several of their uh, proposed ideas for that for that feature 
that some of them were just too good to waste. And one of those pieces was blame it on the samba. Now, that went through through several iterations. And at one point, they were planning to include Carmen Miranda in it. Again, you know, the the ideas kept morphing. And and they had met Ethel Smith at the time that El Grupo made their tour of South America in 1941. So they were already acquainted with her. And she was, and you know, she was very popular at the time. And the Dinning sisters, too. I, I have a kind of a, a special place in my heart for the Dinning sisters, too, because um, they were not anywhere near as well known as the Andrews sisters, but they were another uh, close harmony uh, sister trio. And they had a sound, a kind of distinctive sound of their own. And they had backed up Dinah Shore on one of her songs in Bongo. So they got to be the featured singers. Uh, in Blame It on the Samba. And then Ethel Smith uh, came in and did kind of a red-hot electric organ solo uh, as as part of the musical component of that one. It's such a terrific, like, it, it is such a terrific sequence, but it is very similar to, like, Blue by You and Make My Music. You really do feel like you're watching, you've just dropped into a completely different film all of a sudden, just because it really returns to the the beautiful anarchy of the, of the, um, of the South American films. With, with these sequences, because they knew that they were going to be putting them together as a package film, I imagine a lot of them were conceived with that intention in mind. Was that the case? That some, that they, as opposed to Make My Music, where it's like, what have we got? How can we put this together? Was Melody Time more of a thing of, we know we're making this as a package film. What are ideas that we can develop in order to put them together as a package film? I think the answer to that one is yes and no. Um, because as the 1940s went on, that became more and more evident as 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 a viable way to use this kind of material. So some of these ideas, again, some of these ideas have been around for uh, a long time at that point, including Once Upon a Wintertime. But when it became clear that um, that that package features were a big part of the business they were in at that point, I think they did start maybe thinking along those lines, you know, that, yeah, where, how can we plug this in? So, for example, both this and Make My Music, each one has a kind of uh, somber little mood piece in it that nobody remembers later on. And, and in uh, Make My Music, uh, the mood piece is Without You, which which I actually like very, very much. It's And, and again, that was kind of an outgrowth of the, of the Good Neighbor Project because it's based on a Cuban uh, popular song, but with new with a new English lyric, and and in the finished film, you you would never think of the you know that it had a Latin American connection, but it has. In in the case of Melody Time, the 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 piece was Trees, which is based on the poem by by Joyce Kilmer. The 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 music is is provided by Fred Waring and his Pennsylvanians, and they and and again Waring was was a very popular musician at the time. Uh, this, this is a, a pretty serious piece, so you know it's it's not exactly it's it's not like like having Benny Goodman. You know he was he was he was very well known and and, and a versatile musician. And and again, visually, uh, it's it's another showcase for the for the effects animators. It's funny in terms of like talking about the pieces that most people forget. Like trees is a is pretty remarkable. It just it has a it has a a, a texture that I I can't link to any other work in the Disney canon up until that point. It feels very tactile in a way that the other films haven't up until that point. It would be remiss of me in talking about Melody Time to not bring up the subject of Mary Blair, because Mary Blair is such a monolithic presence in 
the war films, but particularly when we get into the films in the 50s. And this is the first, as much as, you know, she had, she worked on Make My Music, this is the first time where you really see her influence take a step forward, possibly even more so than it does in the, in the South American films, as much as she's a, an enormous presence in those films. Why is that the case? Was the conception around some of these projects particularly to kind of showcase Mary Blair's distinct style um, for the first time? Personally, I would say it's it's not the first time, but but I, I I take your point. I mean, she is she is becoming more and more established at this point, and I and I think it's because she was becoming more and more established at the studio. You know, she uh, again she she really exploded during the the Good Neighbor project. Her uh, touch with color, especially, uh, is is evident all over those films. She had. Uh, determined so much of the visual style of, of of the Good Neighbor films, and now here they are at the end of the war, determining the direction they're going to take forward. And by that time, she has established a really important artistic presence at the studio. Uh, and 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 Walt personally uh, had had a, had a real personal affection for her her contributions. I, I think the, the 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 general story is that uh, she was driving the animators crazy because uh, she would depict things in a still flat drawing that just would not work in animation. And and of course, Walt understood that. But there was a quality to her work that he liked so much that he would always come back to the animators and say, "Why can't you get that effect?" And uh, uh, Eric Larson told me once that he. He worked on um, the. He he animated the, the the horses in Once Upon a Winter Time. Again, that was one that was heavily influenced by uh, by Mary Blair's uh, concept paintings. And so they had these horses with long, long necks that were almost like giraffes. And he said, you know, if if you had followed uh, the usual principles of animation that they did at the studio f- through most of that time. Uh, those necks would would weave back and forth as 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 the horses were moving, and he said, you know, that would have been ridiculous. You would have had horses with with necks like spaghetti, kind of weaving back and forth and getting tangled with each other. So it was up to them uh, to take these stylized designs that she had created, and in some cases, stylize their animation correspondingly, so that the designs would be intact, but they would also work in animation. But it's one of the things that makes that short in particular so distinct and so charming is that it. I mean, it is fascinating from like an, uh, from you know being interested in the history of the company and history of the anim- of the process and the history of Mary Blair's influence to see them trying to really reach into what it is that she's doing and find a way to interpret it in a, in the language of animation, which makes that sh- that particular sequence so distinct. And I mean, it's a great way to start the program because it really throws you into thing of into what the the style and language of this particular film is going to be. It's kind of almost like a proof of concept for what Melody Time, the lens through which you should view Melody Time. Because then the next thing they throw in is um, Bumble Boogie, which is another complete rethink around what visual, the visual language of animation could be. It is, it is, and it's almost like like a next step forward from uh, after you've gone. I find that really, really intriguing. And and again, that's that's another another thing that you see in these films is that they do something in one film that is really striking and, and remarkable and catches your eye. And then in in a later film, you can see them building on that. I, I always think that it's 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 striking to see that in in Saludos Amigos, 
Um, you know, there's that great moment in um, Aquarela do Brasil where you see uh, the paintbrush painting the landscape just in time for Donald and Joe to walk into it. It's it's such a, a, a charming concept. Well, here you are in Make Mine Music in the um, uh, All the Cats Join In segment, taking that same principle and and really building on it. And it becomes even more charming and, and inventive to the point where 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 the artist with with in this case with a pencil is is uh forcing the action to stop so that the pencil can catch up and and finish drawing whatever the object is it's 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 a really uh charming use of animation i think being the last kind of formal one formal concept of the package films how successful do you think it was as a kind of distillation of where disney animation was as it's about to enter into the 50s I I would I would say it's it's very successful. It's it's uh, you're not talking about box office success. You're talking about no no artistic success. Definitely artistic success. I I would say that that you really do see kind of the threshold there. See at that point, as you know, Walt is getting more and more interested in other directions that the company is taking, live action films and so on, which means that more and more of the control over the animated films is in the hands of the animators. There are certain of them who uh, who don't hesitate to step forward and, and seize as much power as they can, <laughs> and and Ward Kimball was one of was one of them. He was always kind, of, you know, all, he always had this kind of precocious talent. So, for example, Kimball does a lot of the most uh, memorable animation in Pecos Bill because he was really interested in that when they, when they were doing the the. The framing sequences we were just talking about for Make Mine Music, Ham Lusk asked Kimball to animate Jiminy Cricket because he had been responsible for developing the character in Pinocchio. Kimball, by that time, said he was sick to death of Jiminy Cricket, and and he had enough clout that he could refuse an assignment if, if he didn't like it. Well, what he was really interested in at that time was Pecos Bill, and and, and obviously, you know, they had other animators who were more than capable of animating uh, Jiminy Cricket. So he, he doesn't suffer in, in Make My Music. But when you see Melody Time and, and you see the Pecos Bill segment, you can see what, what Kimball was up to at that time because that was what he really cared about. And, and it's, and it's a, a great showcase for him to do the kind of wild, free-form animation that he loved to do. Which is going to be so important for them in the years coming. I mean, you know, you can see that influence on something like The Wind in the Willows. And certainly when you get to Alice in Wonderland, it becomes the defining characteristic that makes that film work, is the the way that, that Kimball is able to be like, well, why do we have to adhere to the laws of gravity? Why do we have to adhere to these this kind of classical style? Can we? And then that's the 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 kind of discombobulating quality of Pico's Bill that it's you can't keep up with it in the same way that as uh, you know, Ward, you know Kimball at his best in the uh, the um, conclusion of the Three Caballeros in his work in Alice in Wonderland, you can't keep up with him, which makes it all the more thrilling and all kind of all the more re- revelatory to watch, particularly when you're watching them chronologically, that you're like, I, this is not the kind of work that could have existed in the early 40s. You can't see something like this happening in a Pinocchio. Um, this feels like a logical place for this form to have taken and for him to have decided to take it. To finish up talking about the package films, I have two questions. They're quite big questions. 
The first would be, why do you think these films are important? Why do you think we should be giving them as much attention as the big five or the films in the 1950s? And where do they sit for you personally, as someone who loves Disney animation, both from a professional capacity, but also as a, from a personal um, perspective, where do they sit for you? I, I have a kind of a separate affection for each of these films. The, the, your, your question about why we should, should pay attention to them, I, I think that very early in the 30s on, the Walt Disney Studio is the uh, state-of-the-art studio uh, in animation. It's, it's undeniable that in the, in the 1940s, uh, other studios are really hitting their stride and, and, and doing great work. And I don't mean to, you know, I, I, I love classic Hollywood animation, period. But there's no question that the Disney studio, they, they still have their chops and they are still capable of doing new, exciting and, and, and professionally polished work in many different kinds of animation. If nothing else, these films serve as as a kind of kind of continuing update on the state of the art at that particular time. But uh, but even beyond that, there are just gems uh, embedded in each of these films. Fred Moore's animation of Bongo in in Fun and Fancy Free, when he first finds himself in the forest and is running around exulting in the beauties of nature before he discovers the, the downside of nature. But, but the part preceding that, where he's, where he's so happy to be there and he's just exulting in it, that's, that's another little gem of animation from Fred Moore, who was one of the, one of the, the greats. Same with though The Whale Who Wanted to Sing at the Met, I think is just a, a self-contained classic. You know, if you, if, you, if you don't see these films, you're missing all of these wonderful little gems that are, are just kind of, waiting to be discovered there you know as 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 individual little pieces i think some of them rank with with some of the best stuff that the disney studio ever did so yeah i i think they are uh, a treasure waiting to be discovered by the release of melody time critics and audiences had started to tire of disney's package format the film was once again dismissed, though many of the segments were praised individually. The problem was still that there was nothing cohesive about the format, and that made the film ultimately unsatisfying. It was also unexpectedly costly to make, around $2 million, and unlike the other films, didn't generate a significant profit, something Roy put down to the recent polio scare. Once again, the studio was placed in a dangerous financial position, and once again, more staff were laid off. Melody Time did leave slightly more of a cultural impression than Make My Music, and as with all the package films, the segments enjoyed success on their own. By 1998, Melody Time was one of the few Disney classics not released on home video, but upon its release, the use of cigarettes in Pecos Bill was removed from the US release, and would remain so until it was restored to its original form for its release on Disney+. Though it is easily available on DVD, Melody Time is one of the last three Disney animated classics, along with Make My Music and The Black Cauldron, not to have received a Blu-ray release of any kind. Well, to ask one last question to wrap up, it's a very cruel question to ask you, but it's one that I ask every guest on this, on this podcast. Do you have a favourite Disney animated classic? Um, the short answer is no. <laughs> I... When you're when you're that high up in the stratosphere, 
it, it's really hard to to make comparisons. I, I, I think you could make a case for Pinocchio as the formal masterpiece of the art of animation. You know, as far as the technique is concerned, it's just it's completely off the charts. You know, even Fantasia, I don't think, is is more of a pinnacle of technique than Pinocchio is. On the other hand, I think if I had to take just one of those films to a desert island, I think it might be Snow White. Well, for one thing, you know, it, it has Walt's fingerprints on every frame of the film, uh, the way probably no other film ever did. But also, I think it's just a great culmination of everything they had been doing in the 1930s. Uh, you know, you had that great explosion of talent at, at the Disney studio in the 1930s. I think you get the perfect culmination of that in Snow White. It's, it's, it's got an ineffable charm, I think, that, uh, you know, and, and, I, and I lived with that film for years while writing about it. And I'm, and I'm always ready to go back and see it again. It's, it, you know, you don't get sick of it. It's, uh, it's, it's just, it's, it's a one-of-a-kind thing. Thank you so much, JB, for spending a lot of time chatting to me about these films and sharing your knowledge and your passion and your insight into them. It's been uh, an incredibly valuable and uh, insightful conversation. And also for me personally, as someone who's been reading your work and being immersed in your all the, the fruits of your labours and your studies, um, it's kind of a bucket list moment to be able to have had this chat with you about Walt Disney Animation. Thank you so much for your time and for yeah, having this conversation with me. Well, uh, the the pleasure is mine, and thank you. I've 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 enjoyed this conversation a lot myself. So I love to talk about these films, and I especially love to talk about them with somebody who knows the subject. So uh, this this has been a, a a treat for me. During the early '40s, artists all over the studio had pitched their own ideas for package films. Some of which would have followed the route of the Good Neighbor films and focused on music from other countries. But by 1947. Walt Disney had had enough. These weren't the films he wanted to make. They lacked ambition and scope, did not advance the art form, or suggest the best the studio could be. His interest was starting to wane, and his eye was turning not just away from animation, but away from the studio, becoming lost in his building interest with intricate model trains. Despite the risk, the return to feature animation was starting to gain steam. It was decided that Cinderella would lead the charge, with the long gestating and frustrating Alice in Wonderland to follow. In the meantime though, there were still two smaller projects left to finish. The marriage of whom would become the last and greatest of the package films. One film, many years in development, was based on a beloved British children's story about a motorcar-obsessed toad, while the other, more recently begun, was based on a legendary American short story of a bumbling schoolteacher and a terrifying bloodthirsty horseman without a head. Before the triumph of Cinderella, there was one more leap to make. On the next episode of Ink and Paint, at Thanksgiving one year, my uncle asking me if I could be anywhere in the world where I'd want to be, and I said Disneyland. I'll be joined by entertainment writer and editor Lewis Peitzman as we look at the final film of the wartime era, The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad. Thanks again to JB Kaufman for joining me on this episode. You can find more information about Mr. Kaufman's work at jbkaufman.com or on Facebook at JB Kaufman. 
Be sure to check out the show notes on this episode at inkandpaint.com.au for more information about the making of the package films, including concept art and animation sketches. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the podcast. Hit us up with your comments, questions, or even memories of your favourite Disney films, and we'll be sure to share them on our upcoming episodes. You can email daniel at inkandpaint.com.au or find me on Twitter at Daniel Lamon. Follow Ink and Paint on Twitter and Instagram at inkpaintpod for bonus material and news on upcoming episodes. We release new episodes every fortnight, as well as bonus in-betweeners every now and then. So if you enjoyed the show, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favourite podcasting platform, and don't forget to tell your friends. Ink and Paint was created, hosted, and written by myself, Daniel Lamon, and produced and edited by Alex Amster. Original music is composed by Sam Porter. The show artwork is designed by Nicholas Piranakis, with episode illustrations by Lily Meek, and the podcast is released through Switch. Maketheswitch.com.au Join in next time on Ink and Paint to continue our journey through the Disney animated classics.